Hard first, easy later. Minimum viable product. MVP. So I want to talk about building your MVP, deciding on what your MVP is going to be, you know, what's your process going to be, how how have I done it in the past, how have I seen others do it, and possibly any changes that might happen in 2020 as far as strategies and planning and process. And so first we'll talk about what an MVP is. And that's essentially, there's a lot of different definitions, you know, there's a lot of different stuff out there, but when you kind of break it all down, it is your minimum effort and your maximum output. Uh, so what what is the least amount of effort that you can do, money, time, resources, whatever, uh, that you can spend to get the maximum impact for it. Uh, and it's not just, uh, you're, not, you're not necessarily trying to get a return on your money. Uh, sometimes an MVP is less about making money and more about uh, just proving to the customer or a set of customers that you can deliver the value that you've told them that you want to deliver to them. Uh, maybe you have you know, promissory notes or some kind of an agreement in place that if you deliver a certain MVP that delivers a specific set you know, value or product model or whatever, uh, and solves a feature or solves a problem, uh, then they're going to order from you. And so sometimes that MVP is not actually a marketable product. It's just uh, something that is, or I, I guess it. I guess what I mean by marketable product is, you. It's it's not a productive product monetarily. Sometimes. Uh, it depends. I mean, there's, there's a lot of times, ideally, your MVP would be something that you can actually make money off of. I think that's been more of the trend lately. Uh, I know early on, uh, you know, MVPs didn't have to make money. Uh, I think now we've kind of, kind of turned that corner, and now it's more, you know, if your MVP is not making revenue, then you have a little bit of problem. Uh, but But there are edge cases and and it's definitely different for like more technical medical facing you know anything like that the more complexity uh, you know anything that is newer uh, you get a little bit more of a wide berth so you get a little bit more forgiving you know you have a little bit more investor inter interactions and things like that at least from what I've seen this is not you know I, I don't know if this is a fact for everyone obviously but from what I've seen if you are doing something that's a little bit newer, greenfield, whatever you want to call it, you're going to get a little bit more of respect, even if you don't have revenue behind that MVP, or if your revenue is very small. Uh, it's going to be more about like the information you get, the customers you reach out to, the relationships you build based off of that, the feedback that you're getting. So I want to talk about the process. And for me, it kind of breaks down to like a five-step process, but... I know that some people, and it's really, I want to say it's more like three steps, but I think five steps is kind of the industry norm or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so step one is you kind of have your analysis, your planning phase. Step two, you have design. You know, you're, you're doing a lot of mocks. And I think this is back when people used to do like PSD mock-ups where you would 
you know, you would actually build out the screen with a designer and you would give it to a developer and say, build this screen. And then you would give them another screen and then you'd tell them, build this screen now. And, and they, everything had to kind of like glue together. And there was a lot of, uh, uh, kind of, um, subliminal or, or, uh, implicit, uh, you know, instructions as you're building these things. And so it was more, like you could have great designers. I think it was very common to have great designers that do great mock-ups, but then you would never have the same execution on the development side because it just was so disconnected and it was kind of, you had designers that didn't understand how it was being built and things like that. And I think now you have designers that kind of cross over to the developer side and the developers that kind of cross over to the design side. And then also design is more you know user experience focused. So you have a lot of experienced researchers and you kind of have a little bit more of, you know, a landscape, at least for, and I'm talking about just more on the senior side. Uh, you know, I haven't seen a lot of the, you know, um, you know, junior side, uh, I want to say at least in the last couple of months. Um, so yeah, so we have our analysis, we have our design, we have our development phase, then we have our testing phase, then we have our launch phase. Now, as far as launch phase, that's that's kind of a loose phrase. It, for me, it's more of like user acceptance. Uh, usually, it's kind of like an internal launch. Um, maybe you maybe you have an app, and before you publish it to the store, you do like test flight testing with uh, potential customers with your uh, your own people, which you've probably already tested it with your own people. But it's not it's not so much testing. It is testing, but it is more about the usability. So it's it's kind of like a dated, you know, UX approach where you don't really do the UX until the end. That's kind of what it is. It's like you go through flows. So you would actually do like a set number of actions. Maybe you'd log into an app. You would place an order. Uh, you would just make sure that it works as intended in as many flows as possible with as many different users as you can. Uh, I know some people do like load testing, but I think that's kind of... A little bit dated you know there's not a lot of load testing unless you're talking about like billions of people or something um or, or millions at least in some cases uh, so so that's the traditional structure of phases for me uh, that i've seen now where i think that kind of breaks down especially in like a startup environment when you're running a little bit more lean uh, i think you you know, you, you have to move a little bit faster and it's not just about moving faster. I think the process involved here actually makes you go slower, uh, just because everything's kind of, you know, quarantined off and it's got its own little corner. Whereas I think if you run your planning initially, and then you run a little bit of design, a little bit of development, a little bit of testing in parallel. Okay. Now the testing is one of those things where maybe we don't run that in, par in parallel with development. Maybe we run the testing with like our user acceptance. And when I say testing, I'm really talking about, uh, you know, kind of more of like your final layer of testing. So more like device testing, physical testing, manual testing. Uh, some of it will be automated, but but non-developer testing, if that makes sense. So you have kind of your unit tests, your component tests, uh, your end-to-end -end tests, 
Now, end-to-end -end tests you're going to probably share between your development team and your uh, your QA team, UX testing team, whoever, and that is generally going to be automated. Should be automated. If it's not automated, you need to automate it. Uh, there's no reason for it not to be automated. Uh, the other part, I, I guess there's some edge case, like extreme edge cases where you can't do a full end-to-end -end test, but that's maybe like more fulfillment side. Like maybe you have like an order placing app and it tracks an order or something. And I don't know, even then I think you can automate it, but yeah, we'll just, we'll just for argument's sake, we'll say that you can automate that. So potentially at this point, all your tests are automated until after end to end testing. Now we're talking about our user acceptance and our UX testing. And that's where you can't really automate that because you need a physical human being to be there. You need to time them. You need to, you know, put a model in place in front of them and, and take notes and you need to get metrics out of them. You need to extract as much information as you can, as much feedback and decide whether or not it's an acceptable MVP or not. If this is, you know, cause I, a lot of times an MVP, you could have major bugs, but it doesn't matter if you do one thing, right? then you could still ship it, you know? So it really depends more on what your value added feature is and less about, you know, having a complete app. That's not what this is. This MVP is not about shipping a stable product. <laughs> That's not what it's about. Uh, and so you have to resist from like the whole perfectionism and procrastination. You can't do that. You have to kind of get your core feature and then just ship it. Now, if we go back to how we're going to bring those together. So, so basically what I'm proposing is that we put all three of those phases together. Okay. Now, how do we bring them all together in parallel? So if we have our planning, we obviously do not want to creep on our, our, the scope of our planning phase. So let's say we have five sprints. Okay. Five sprints to complete this MVP. So our sprint zero or sprint one is going to be all of our planning phase. Okay. And I think that's reasonable. Okay. You kind of plan everything out, figure out where you're going to go, define what your MVP is, all your features. Maybe you have like a wish list where you rate features and then you, you, you basically say, okay, well, when we get deeper into this, we're going to know which one of these we can, f you know, fully build out. So when we get to that, we'll pick from this list of, you know, priority uh, items. Uh, hopefully you don't have that, but I think if you get to that situation, you want to make that decision on the outset before you get in there and then, you know, you're pivoting in the middle of an MVP. You don't want to do that. So you, you keep your planning phase separate. Now your design and development phase and part of your testing should be in one phase, okay? Now the user experience testing can partially be in the development phase. The uh, UI testing obviously should be in the development phase. It shouldn't be in anything else. And your user acceptance phase is not going to be in your development phase. Okay. I don't, I don't see a reason for it to be in there. Now dev testing and maybe stakeholder testing, which could be construed as UAT testing, uh, that could happen in the development phase, but I don't, I don't think it's good to get that kind of feedback in that phase. Now, when you come out of that phase, then you can do more, you know, feedback type testing. Uh, I think when you're going through the development phase and the design phase together, you're going to be working in parallel. So, you know, 
functional teams. I know I know some people oppose that. I think functional teams are good are good way of working as far as MVPs. Uh, if you're doing an MVP, you kind of have to be functional. Every MVP M- MVP that I've been on, uh, for the most part, except for maybe two or three, uh, I was on a functional team. And I think the ones that I was on that were functional, we went extremely fast, extremely fast because you get feedback so quick, you get information very quickly, you get things done and it's very fluid. You know, it's, I need this resource or I need this thing tweaked or changed or whatever. And you can reach out to the resource that has that ability and they could do it, give it back to you and you can keep moving forward and you get unblocked very quickly this way but also everybody gets on the same page. And that's the most important thing. Everyone starts to understand in a cohesive way, what is our intent for this MVP? What is our intent behind each one of these stories, each one of these features that we're building out? And I think that's where the value really comes through. So if you do that all in one phase, I think it kind of benefits the rest of the product as far as the build. It's it's more of, you know, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's more of you, you have kind of a, uh, you know, one chef in the kitchen kind of thing. So it forces you to work together as far as the design and development phase, which is kind of, kind of the most common separation also with testing, you know, testing may not be as tightly coupled because you're kind of splitting it between the launch phase and the development phase, but still you're working together. You're communicating. So when you write a test in the development phase, you're communicating that test that you wrote to your testing team. And the same thing with your design. Your design is communicating, hey, here's the mock, but here's also what I think it should be doing. And then they're able to actually communicate with development, depending on how close that relationship is or working environment is, uh, they could potentially give something to the development team, get an iteration in the same day, and then give initial feedback to the developers. Now, you don't want it to go beyond that. You know, you don't want to have... Uh, you know, greater feedback outside of the team or the greater team feedback during the development phase because anything like that is going to hamper your, uh, your, your speed. It's going to slow things down. So anytime you get more people involved, things slow down. That's just how it is. So what I think is that is kind of the process, I think, for an MVP um, and I think, and I think, and if you were going to break that down as far as the sprints that I kind of started to talk about, which was, you know, sprint zero, your planning. Uh, if we were what five sprints uh, deep, then uh, we'd do like four uh, or or three three sprint three sprints on development, one sprint on launch, or four develop. I think the the ratio would make more sense if it was one sprint planning four sprints development, one sprint launch, and UAT. Um, yeah, I think that works out. Because, well, and I guess, I guess there could be an argument to where you could split it. So you could do, you could overlap launch and development, which I kind of like. I've done that in the past, where you have kind of like a soft launch phase, but you still continue with development. So maybe you build out partial flows or or maybe you complete your first flow uh, and you can, or user journey, whatever you want to call it. And you take that, you send it over to your launch team and they start running, you know, a soft launch. So then it kind of extends things so that you can get early feedback while you're working on a separate feature. So you're not blocking anything. Uh, I think that could speed things up. So 
yeah, I kind of like that idea. So, and then, you, but then I guess you'd still want to do like a final thing, but I guess you wouldn't really have to define it in a specific sprint. Um, it would make more sense if it was like, you know, around our third or fourth sprint, we'll, we'll assess where we're at. We'll do like a spike, assess where we're at, see if we have enough to do a soft launch and begin getting, uh, you know, greater team feedback and, uh, and send that out. And I think that works out if it's like in the middle. So if you have six sprints, you do it on your third sprint. If you have five sprints, you do it after your third sprint, maybe, you know, I don't know. I guess you'd, you should round up if it's a, if it's a, uh, an odd number. Um, because two sprints, that's, that's basically one sprint of planning and then one sprint of work. And then you're giving feedback after one sprint. I don't like that. Uh, so you definitely would do two. So you would do one planning, two development, then greater feedback. And yeah, I think I think that could be, I think that could definitely be a good process. Um, yeah. So I definitely think in in twenty twenty specifically, um, you know, obviously AR VR is up there. AI is up there. I think there's like a, I don't know. There's a there's a new report out. So something about, um, I mean, everybody knows this stuff is going up. It's not really news to anybody. I hope not. Um, but, uh, of course now I did, I did see some stuff about blockchain in this report and <laughs> I'll just ignore that. Um, I like Bitcoin. I have some Bitcoin stuff or other cryptocurrencies or whatever. Actually, I think I've left less Bitcoin than I have of other random currencies. Um, but I don't. I don't like the whole thing, how they're just basically like, oh, well, we we don't like cryptocurrencies. We hate them, but we love the technology behind them. So we're just going to put blockchain in everything. So it's, it's kind of getting annoying at this point uh, because, you know, crypto is not really mainstream, but blockchain is mainstream at this point. So, yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, so I, I think AR, VR obviously is just going to keep going through the roof. A lot of that is going to have to do with this 5G that's coming. So with 5G, you're going to start seeing a lot more kind of like feature rich, I think, or media rich, you know, rich media, whatever you want to call it, uh, like video, you know, uh, real time video processing, things like that. They're going to just start happening more and more and more. And we're already seeing this, but it's, I think also you're starting to see a shift from like, you, you still have edge computing where you kind of have like your your, your off-prem, your, your cloud computing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but then you still have more, I think more is getting packed into the client side. And I think that's kind of how things are going is that the client is getting smarter and smarter and smarter. Now, it's twofold because it's, it's, it's kind of like a case-by-case a case basis because I think there's cases where the client can be extremely dumb and you have that ability to go that way where everything can be powered outside of the client. The client barely knows anything. And the reverse is true too, where when you want it to, when the product calls for it, you're seeing now that you can actually make the client extremely smart. You know, we're seeing a lot of like kind of uh, machine learning type things. Now, I don't want to say it's it's like obviously not going to be as good as, you know, hitting some kind of cloud environment or anything like that. But you're seeing a lot of these like, mini kind of like micro ML, you know, apps that have some stuff locally. And so you're, 
And it's also obviously offline stuff, offline first approaches and things like that are, are starting to kind of mature. They've been around for a while, but I think people are starting to kind of come around to some of these concepts of optimistic UI and, you know, offline first and how, you know, users want to have a seamless experience, even if their internet is kind of spotty. Like if they're driving on the highway, they expect to have the exact same interaction with their app as if they were on their home Wi-Fi. And I think that is, uh, and, and the other thing too, is that what if you're in downtown, you know, what if somebody is from downtown New York city or whatever, where they're used to having Wi-Fi or, or great internet or great cell phone signal or whatever. And you need that to be the same experience. Whereas if they're out in the country or if they're traveling and and so I think that all comes back to kind of how you manage your state. I think state management is kind of maturing. There are so many different patterns out there. There's a lot of new patterns that we're seeing, uh, specifically with mine. It's, you know, Sagas. Sagas is coming in um, pretty well right now. Uh, there's a lot of GraphQL stuff, a lot of, a lot of other stuff out there right now. But I think that's definitely a big driver right now. Um, also performance performance in some of these these uh, different platforms is just through the roof um, a lot of these you know kind of progressive web apps uh, you know basically mobile apps that you don't really have to download from the store things like that they're kind of on the rise but it's it's more you know universal apps are starting to cross that line from uh, from kind of a budget app to a mainstream app and a scale app, I think, you know, unless, unless you are a giant company and your whole product is based on a digital product, I think it makes it very difficult, <laughs> very difficult to uh, justify having a, a huge development team that is pure native for each platform. It just doesn't scale. And so we're seeing that now where these cross-platform um you know, patterns are, are popping up because the performance is getting better and better and better. Obviously, the two right now is Flutter and React Native. I like React Native more. You know, I work on it all the time, so I'm biased. But I think it's the winner. But uh, but I, I'm just glad that there's competition because I think it's going to push both of them forward. I mean, each of them have been releasing tons of new updates based off of the uh, what the other one is doing. And then obviously, React Native kind of has to react to the React world, which is web. And so they're being driven by, you know, Svelte and all these other, you know, kind of weird frameworks. And I say weird because it's, Svelte is weird. I don't, anybody who says Svelte isn't, isn't weird, I, I don't believe them. <laughs> uh, that's my opinion, though, whatever. Um, yeah, so especially around, um, you know, kind of the, the smart apps I want to kind of touch on, which is like, you know, because we say machine learning, AI, uh, AI is not really a thing. It's it's really just all machine learning. Um, yeah, but but just to kind of put a metaphor or like something real to that, um, we're really talking about things like, you know, kind of predictive algorithms uh, based off of past data. So, you know, maybe you have like a financial trading app or a stock trading app, some some type of a a a uh, a data heavy app and that's based off of user actions uh, we're seeing a lot of like machine learning where you take these data sets 
and then you use them to predict user actions for the future. And, you know, that's been around for obviously forever in the stock market and there's bots that trade all the time. Uh, but the same thing with, you know, media buying, ad buying, um, you know, auctions, um, you know, cu customer purchases. I think Amazon has something where they can, uh, they can almost completely like almost a hundred percent accurately predict your next purchase or something like that. So we're really close to, you know, that kind of, I mean, they already have features, especially with Apple, but Apple's not really there. I think Amazon's more there where you can just be like, Hey, buy me something. And, and it'll just buy something that you think that it thinks you want. And most of the time it's probably right. Uh, I don't think they've rolled it out mainstream or really promoted it because there's obviously going to be a lot of bugs with that. You can't be, you can't be hundred percent, hundred percent on stuff like that. But that's what I'm talking about when I say machine learning is, you know, basically past actions dictating future actions. And, and I think that is not just, um, it's, it's not so much that it has to live on the client or the majority of it live on the client. It's that the, the way that it's being put in place is to where it, it can either come across like it's living on the client or a part of it is actually living on the client. And I think that's kind of that af that offline first approach that, that everybody is kind of trying to go after. Now, when we talk about MVPs in 2020, I think, you know, the landscape has changed uh, when it, when it comes to, you know, building an app or especially the infrastructure, you know, the database, the, the backend logic, um, you know, which, which used to be kind of like your differentiator, but nowadays, um, you know, and it still can be, but I think nowadays you have this, this low, low code movement. And then you also also have this no code movement, which is these platforms, uh, think of it like, uh, Google docs and maybe somebody uses Google docs to be their backend or you know something even simpler maybe there's like a different interface where you just kind of drag and drop some images around and that exposes an endpoint you hook it up to some other app so it's kind of a non-technical movement where you have a lot of these people that are building out infrastructure and apps in some cases that are powered uh, completely in a uh, you know, kind of non-low level way, things are all becoming, they're all coming to the surface as far as high level. And when I say high level, I mean farther away from the hardware. And so what high level essentially means when you're talking about it that way is that there, we're going through a, another phase of abstractions throughout the marketplace. And what happens is you have, uh, you know, it's happening on the you know, higher level side, the non-engineers that are that are able to make apps and and deliver a startup now, uh, or at least an MVP that can do something, some kind of a minimum value that is out there right now that are people are able to do without touching any code is launch these MVPs without touching code. But then at the same time, even on the engineering side, you're actually seeing engineers that are living in this kind of new abstraction phase, which I went through that too. I mean, I live in like the, you know, the ES 2019, 2020 syntax, whatever is out there for ECMAScript. And, and I can't even remember anything. I can barely remember some ES5 stuff, 
uh, ES6, maybe, you know, that's kind of like the, that was like the big change for me. So uh, I'm pretty good with all the ES6 stuff, but ES5, I mean, even some of the ES5 stuff I'm not up on and, and anything beyond that. I mean, <laughs> I don't even remember back that far back. Um, but you have, uh, you have these new, you know, kind of generation of engineers that are coming in that don't know anything behind last month. And so they come in and, and it's, it's kind of like what I have as far as anything before ES5, uh, which for anybody else, uh, who's not sure when that was, it was around, I think 2015, I want to say maybe before that I could be wrong. I, I have no idea. Um, but, but anyway, so when, when ES5 came out, everything before that, uh, plus I had worked on so many different things. I think that was really a tipping point for JavaScript in general, because people started to stop using like CoffeeScript or jQuery or these weird libraries that had their own kind of syntax. And they were, they were starting to like, they solved one problem, but then they started to just go down a really deep, weird path. And it was so far different from what ECMAScript was going in. And so when the new ECMAScript standards started coming out in a, in a faster, like they promised it was going to be a faster iteration cycle and all this stuff, it was going to be yearly or something. And when that happened, I think that it just kind of shifted everybody to, you know, you, you couldn't really stay on like CoffeeScript or some obscure thing. I mean, there was like hundreds of these things. Those are just the ones I can think of. Um, but it made it hard to stay on those because if that platform or library wasn't up on the latest syntax with JavaScript or they did something that collided with that new syntax, it was always a workaround. And so what happened is you kind of had this like jumbled, crappy, you know, kind of spaghetti code or, uh, uh, you know, all these polyfills and just weird you know, edge cases had to be handled. So I think that kind of matured the JavaScript environment and a lot of libraries kind of, it was kind of like shit or get off the pot kind of thing where, you know, if you weren't like a major player, you had to get out because there was no way to stay up with uh, the new ECMAScript standard and at the same time worry about putting out new features to keep your users using your platform or your library. And some of these are probably still around. I have no idea, but... I know that largely they've lost their market use. So, yeah. So I think that's kind of been a clear, you know, thing as far as what happened, who the winners and losers were. Um, but around that is, you know, <laughs> to get back from that tangent, is that all of those things are are just not there for some of these newer engineers. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not as good. That's not That's not a thing because the same thing for me is there's engineers that are, you know, 30 years uh, experience and they look at me and they're like, oh my God, you know, you, you don't work in, uh, in C, you know, and, and I'm like, you know, uh, no, <laughs> you know, and, and some of these are like lower level language, language guys. And they, they look at us as, you know, we're, we're, uh, it's kind of like when you're the oldest and you're, and you pave the way for the youngest, you know, the youngest comes in and the youngest child gets all the 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 easy stuff i mean i remember uh what was it because i i used to have to uh sneak um well anyways i don't, I don't want to get into that too much um <laughs> but anyways uh so 
what was it? Uh, well, I'll, I'll just, yeah, I don't think it's that big a deal. Um, so I would sneak girls uh, during high school. We had this hot tub in the backyard. And so I'd sneak girls in there at night or if, you know, my parents were out of town. And if I got caught, like it, it would be like World War Three. I never got caught. I don't know why I never got caught. But, you know, to me, it was just painstaking because I could just never have anybody over. Um, I wasn't allowed to. But I remember coming back to visit years later after I had graduated high school and everything. And I came to visit. I was picking up my brother or something. And he walks out of the shower, okay, with a towel on. And his girlfriend is in there as well. And they just took a shower together. And my mom's in the living room. And I was like, what in the fuck? Like, that's... And anyways, so that that whole tangent to just say that, yes, younger kids, they have it good. So whoever came before me paved the way for the abstractions. I got the benefits of those. And then now I'm thinking there's another generation that's getting a greater benefit from these abstractions. And what that means is that you can focus on different types of logic, like machine learning. And... A lot of these machine learning people don't know how, <laughs> what's happening under the hood. They, but they're very good at what they do. And because they're, they know how to work with these abstractions, they don't need, or well, maybe they need to, to get to another level, but not a lot of them don't know, uh, or don't have to know to use it. Maybe if they want to, you know, perfect their craft, they do need to know, or would be nice to know kind of thing. But for the most part, they can be effective at their job without actually knowing how these methods are being executed. And that has to do with all these abstractions. So that's why we have so many of these no-code, low-code, where you don't even need to know code. And then you have these engineers where you barely have to know code, or you don't have to worry about entire sections of your architecture anymore because it's it's completely abstracted away. And, and you can still go deep on everything, but you don't have to. And that's the advantage, is that you can go very shallow on the areas that you don't care about. And then if you're building an MVP and your MVP has something to do with servers or something to do with um, uh, you know, a specific piece of your infrastructure, you can isolate that and go deep on that and go shallow on everything else very easily and, and to a level that you couldn't do even a couple of years ago. And so I think that's just true even outside of MVPs. I, I think just any level of uh, of, of at least in the tech industry, everything is going through an abstraction phase where things are being automated, things are being streamlined, patterns are kind of surfacing to the top, the winners and losers are, are, are becoming more known. And so there's kind of like a shakeup, I think. And so I think MVPs for 2020, you know, you have to kind of go faster and you really have to nail down uh, what your differentiator is. But at the same time, that's the other thing that, that we're going through right now where, you know, that's, I think, I think what's behind this whole user experience movement, um, because it used to be when I would talk about UX years ago, um, you know, no, none of my clients cared, you know, but now, and, and now even, I want to say some of them don't care all that much, especially the big corporate ones. They don't care that much, but the interesting thing about it is that the, uh, the, I want to say that the differentiator for a lot of different uh, apps, startups, even large companies, established companies, is the user experience, meaning that their products are so similar that there is just there's not enough room 
in some of these areas to compete. Like they're, they're, they're not really competing over, you know, this feature or th this app lets me sync with my Microsoft account and then this one lets me sync with my Apple account. That's not really a thing anymore. Everything just kind of works. And there's not really this huge barrier in features. It's more about user experience, more about design, it's more about, you know, thinking about the customer and less about, uh, you know, kind of this black and white, we have the button, you don't have the button kind of mentality. and that's still out there and you know there's plenty of MVPs and startups out there that are making money but it's just I think uh, I think that is the only place that really lives is in the startup world or the MVP world right now I think in the kind of mature product you know marketplace where you're competing with mature products versus mature products uh, I think you're seeing more about user experience and I think that's becoming more of a driver for development and for design work that's coming in. Uh, and I think if it's not, I think people are going to see that change in 2020 or there's going to be a shakeup as far as, you know, like Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies that are dependent on customer-driven um, uh, interactions and engagements. I think there's going to be, I mean, there are, there's always shakeups, but I think that's going to matter more now just because the technology landscape is kind of closing in and it's kind of like Moore's law, you know, coming to an end. It's the same thing on the uh, engineering side. It's kind of it's kind of all coming to a head where things are becoming maybe not easy, but you know, we're really getting to that automation decade, if you want to if you want to call it that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of my thoughts on MVPs for 2020, and you know, my approach as as well. I have some plans to hopefully build some in 2020. I have like two that are unpublished right now and I'm uh, working on some internally as well. Uh, so yeah, and I, and I really hope uh, somebody else out there makes some cool stuff. So yeah, I'm going to go ahead and end it there. Uh, and maybe I'm thinking I might do a follow-up. Um, I have an MVP coming up uh, at my job that I'm doing and... So I may do I may do like a part two after that because uh, because I think a lot of the patterns and stuff that that I'm trying to bring to kind of the process of making an MVP are going to be kind of actually done in the real world and I want to kind of I'll probably do like a then and now thing kind of thing or an assumptions versus uh, perception beforehand um, yeah so I'll go ahead and end it here and let you guys go.